Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Martin Arnold, the FT's Banking Editor. Joining me in the studio is Laura Noonan, our Investment Banking Correspondent, and Barney Thompson, our Legal Correspondent. While we'll also be hearing from Patrick Jenkins, our Financial Editor, and Ben McClanahan, our US Banking Editor. First up, we'll be talking about the criminal charge brought against Barclays this week over its financial crisis era fundraising from investors in Qatar. Secondly, we'll be hearing an interview with the chief executive of Triodos, the ethically focused bank. And finally, we'll be hearing from Bruce Van Sorn, chief executive of Citizens Bank in the US. So starting with Barclays, the Serious Fraud Office this week filed another charge against Barclays of financial assistance. Barney, what do the charges actually relate to? Because there's two different charges that the SFO has brought against Barclays and its former executives, including the former chief executive, John Varley. Tell us about the two charges and what they relate to. Okay, so this takes us back to the height of the financial crisis between June and November 2008. The markets are in turmoil and Barclays turns to private investors to shore up its balance sheet and to try and avoid a UK government bailout, which is what various other banks eventually turn to. And it raised in two fundraising rounds several billion pounds from a range of investors, including Qatar Holding which was part of the state's sovereign wealth fund, and Challenger Universal, which was the private investment vehicle of the former Qatari prime minister. Now, it's two related deals linked to those fundraising rounds that have become the focus of the SFO's investigation. One is something called advisory service agreements that were paid to Qatar Holding, which were initially not disclosed. They only came to light some years later. And a $3 billion loan from Barclays to the state of Qatar in November 2008. So the implication there is that Barclays was in effect using investors to loan to itself, which it's not allowed to do under UK rules. Barclays Group, And four of its chief executives were charged in, I think, June last year. And we were waiting. This has been quite anticipated, this charge against Barclays Bank PLC. And it's finally come around. And that is to do with the $3 billion loan from November 2008. Okay, And Barclays, the parent company, was already charged with this illegal financial assistance. But it was also charged with another charge which was a fraud charge, right? That is to do with the so-called advisory fees that were initially not disclosed. Over £300 million of advisory fees. £323 million of advisory fees over five years, yes. Okay. Laura, tell us about why this is important. The main thing about this new charge is the entity it has been levelled against. So this charge is against Barclays Bank. Barclays Bank is what holds the regulatory licences. So there are particular implications to having a regulated entity having a criminal charge against it and having a criminal finding 
the other charges were either against, there was four former executives and there was also charges against Barclays Group. Now, Barclays Group, while it's at the very top of the Barclays companies, it doesn't actually hold the licences. So from a regulatory perspective, having a Barclays Bank charge does take it into new territory in terms of what could happen. So if they were to have a negative finding against Barclays Bank, that could have an impact on Barclays' ability to continue doing the business of a bank. Yeah, I mean, we have not seen criminal charges brought against a British bank before. So it's very hard to predict what the outcome would be for Barclays were it to be found guilty. And we're still quite a long way, at least a year away from any court date. So it's very hard to predict this. But we have seen in the past several banks plead guilty in the US to various charges. And yet none of those lost their licenses. And yesterday, the market was pretty relaxed, wasn't it? Shares in Barclays ended the day up, I think. In the US, the nearest was BNP Paribas, which lost part of its licence for a period of time when they weren't allowed to do some dollar activities. But it wasn't overly onerous on the overall group. Barclays very much seems to be taking the view and the view of the market seems to be that the FCA is not going to shut down a bank the size of Barclays over something that happened 10 years ago, 11 years ago, by the time this thing comes to court anyway. So they're basically taking the view that while there are theoretically a lot of things, and there may even be things that you might do to a smaller, less important bank than Barclays, the chances of Barclays actually getting any of the really serious criminal sanctions would seem to be pretty low. You also mentioned that there are various US cases. So Barclays is one of the only banks that has refused to settle. So we've seen a lot of large European banks and US banks pay billions and billions because they agreed that they had missold mortgage bonds pre-crisis. Barclays is saying it will not settle. So they're going to take that and see how far it plays out. They've also dug their heels in over the tenure of the Barclays chief executive, Jez Staley, who's had some issues of his own. So I think the board has shown that the board is willing to be brave and take its chances on the big issues. Now, just one last word, Barney. The SFO is, is at an interesting point in its time with the chief executive of the SFO approaching the end of his tenure there. And they had a bit of a setback recently in the big case against Tesco. So perhaps people are speculating that this latest charge against Barclays is an attempt to go out on a high. I think the point to make about the timing of this is not so much whether it's being squeezed in before David Green leaves which I very strongly doubt that it is, and more just how long it takes for these things to be investigated. This activity took place between June and November 2008, so that's nearly 10 years ago. The charges against Barclays Group and the four former senior executives were only put in June 2017 We're a decade on from the financial crisis, and yet we're still seeing the ramifications of the financial crisis. We're still seeing regulators investigate. The SFO is running a number of investigations that are taking a very, very long time indeed to reach charges, let alone trials and then verdicts if we manage to get them. So the lesson, I think, if anything, is that the wheels of justice turn very, very slowly, but they are still turning with regard to the events of the financial crisis. Okay, Barney and Laura, thank you very much. Now turning to the world of sustainable banking and the first ever environmentalist to lead a British bank is Bevis Watts, who is the UK head of Triodos, a European sustainable bank. And he's been talking to Patrick Jenkins about what the bank has been up to, particularly in the UK and how it's different from all the other lenders on the high street. 
Bevis, thanks very much for coming in. Pleasure. It's a really interesting time for an institution like yours. You've got an ethical mandate. And you've been growing for some years in that area, most recently in the UK. And I suppose the background to this is interesting on at least two fronts. Firstly, we've had post-financial crisis, all of the scandals that the mainstream banks have been involved with, giving you potentially a competitive opportunity. And I suppose the other thing is some of the UK's homegrown institutions in this area, notably the co-op, have suffered their own scandals. And so the kind of way is wide open for you to expand. Has that been your experience? Have you found you're pushing at an open door in this area? Yeah, I mean, from the perspective of where we come from, I think since the financial crisis, we've kind of seen three phases of debate. The first phase was how do we stop this happening and deal with the contagion of the financial crisis? The second debate then moved on to how do we stop this happening again? And we saw a wave of new regulation, such as the senior manager's conduct regime, to try and curb behaviours and culture in banking. And I think now we're entering a real sort of interesting phase of debate where 10 years on from the financial crisis, there's more and more people questioning, does this current financial system actually serve us? What's it leading to in terms of a future society? And so we're certainly finding people very receptive to the new current account we launched last year and have seen a lot of growth and interest around the bank and how money can be used responsibly and sustainably because I think people are really waking up that one of the biggest forces in our society is money and what it's used for. As you say, the whole idea of filtering out bad behaviour is something that's a bit of a kind of fashion thing at the moment, particularly in the asset management sphere we're seeing ESG filters on a lot of products. Tell us how you set yourself apart from that ethical light model, I suppose. In what way are you kind of ethical heavy? I suppose there's three things that define sustainable banking for us. Firstly, it's what the money is used for. So we only finance things that can demonstrate a positive environmental, social or cultural benefit. So it's not about setting minimum standards. It's about saying, well, positively, what does this actually do? It's also about our banking model. So there's several things there. Our ownership model is quite unique and it means the the mission of the bank is protected and we can never be taken over through the structure we've put in place. We're completely transparent, so we publish every loan and investment we make worldwide. You can visit knowwhereyourmoneygoes.co.uk and sort of scrutinise that we are using the money in a very positive way. And we also don't borrow money from other banks, so we only lend a proportion of the funds entrusted to us. So it's a very robust sort of, some might say, old-fashioned model with high levels of capital as well. And the final thing really is how we run our business. So in every sinew of how we run our business, we try and be as socially and environmentally responsible as we can. Tell us a little bit about the background of the bank, because you launched in the UK some years ago, but you've kind of ramped up more recently. You grew up in the Netherlands. Yeah, so the bank was founded in the Netherlands in 1980, and uh, we're now operating in six European countries. And we've been in the UK, this is our 23rd year here, and our UK balance sheet is now approaching 1.2 billion. And European-wide, we have about 700,000 customers and a 13.5 billion balance sheet. So we're an established bank now. We often get asked, what's it like to be a challenger bank, which is quite interesting because that's a term often used to describe a new generation of banks. And it's a compliment, really, that we're seen now as a real challenging alternative. And I like to think challenging the way banking is done, not just providing competition. With that challenger term in mind, you're doing some interesting things around the way that you offer products and structure the funding for some products, particularly you're adopting a peer-to-peer model. Tell us a bit more about that. Well, for 15 years or so now, we've had a track record in supporting pioneering businesses and charities in raising risk capital 
And now we've taken that to the next level. So we've launched um, triadoscrowdfunding.co.uk, which will provide investors with a range of primarily bond opportunities, typically paying between 5 and 7%. And it's an opportunity through an innovative finance ISA or even directly to invest in high impact social enterprises, charities, businesses and so on. And uh, I think what we're doing is responding to what we've seen a growing market in terms of investor appetite. So the alternative investment market in the UK is now estimated at around 4.6 billion. So we think more and more people are wanting to use their money for positive social impact. The other thing is we're seeing more and more businesses and charities come forward looking to raise money in this way. And I think this provides us with a seamless one-stop shop, both for the sort of investee organisation and for the investor who can have a broad relationship with a bank as well. Okay. A final thing on that, I suppose. Are you worried about the risks in this? Because crowdfunding splits the financial world in terms of the reputation and the kind of risks involved, I suppose. We've seen a few blow-ups, particularly in the US, around peer-to-peer lenders. Is there a danger that you harm your own brand if this doesn't go as you hope? We're very precious of our brand and our track record. We've got a very strong track record already, having raised over $130 million for 50 different projects through crowdfunding. So, I think our track record is a good one. But the thing is, we're the first bank to launch our own crowdfunding website. We're the first bank to have an innovative finance ISA. And absolutely, we position what this is very carefully to investors. People need to understand that this is different from other forms of ISA. You can lose your money. And so, you know, this is a micro site. It's ring fenced. There's a clear investor journey where people understand those risks. So I think naturally, we hope a regulated bank entering this space gives people more confidence about what stands behind it and the rigour and the responsibilities we take very seriously to them. Very good. Well, good luck with that and with everything. Bevis Watts, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. And our final item is another interview, this time on the other side of the Atlantic, with one of the top challenger banks in the US. Bruce Van Sorn is chief executive of Citizens Bank, which used to be owned by Royal Bank of Scotland in the UK, but was sold down a few years ago and spun off as a standalone independent bank. And Bruce has been talking to our US banking editor, Ben McClanahan. Bruce, thank you very much for joining me. Uh, Let's begin with what seems to be top of mind for lots of the CEOs that uh, I talk to, uh, financial regulation reform. People have talked about the the pendulum swinging too far in the years after the crisis. In what ways, I mean, is that right? Did it swing too far? And in what ways did you really feel that swing? Well, I'd say there certainly was need for reform after the crisis. And so there was some very good reform, first on the prudential side, Uh, in terms of capital, liquidity, funding structures, governance, uh, risk management, stress testing. And then the second wave was really around conduct and culture, and there was need for reform there too. But as you say, whenever there's uh, reform, oftentimes uh, you'll kill an ant with a sledgehammer and you'll go too far. And uh, you have to bring that back in balance because I think the, the consequence of going too far is that you spend extra resources doing busy work that doesn't add a lot of value or you know you end up with suboptimal decision making and capital allocation and that holds back the economy to some degree busy work uh, is a nice phrase what do you mean by that you know f- for example in the ccar process you have to build That's the stress testing the stress right. testing yeah you have to uh, review much historical data and then build models and then it's proscribed that you have a challenger group 
who tries to attack the models. And so there's a champion model and a challenger model, and then you have to try to review all of the And the, the challenges outputs. come from the Fed, do they? No, they're from our own people. So okay. we have to set up two groups. So we have, you know, 40-plus PhDs, a number on one side and then a number on the other side, and trying to make sure that we develop models in the end that we can rely on. And so you kind of ask yourself the question, did, do I really need 40 PhDs doing that? Could I do it with maybe 15, 10, and still have good models that we can rely on? So, again, I'd love to free those resources and have those folks working as data scientists, understanding data on our customers, how can we serve our customers better, as opposed to all this extra work that went into to some of the uh, whole stress testing process. So under this new suite of regulators beginning to be installed now, uh, such as the, the, the Fed guys, the, the OCC guys, the FDIC, potentially, yeah. in a month or so, are the prospects of deploying those resources more efficiently better? Yeah, I think they're better. And I think step one is if we uh, have the Dodd-Frank SIFI designation increased to 250. Which this is a systemically uh, important financial that's institution. That's right, yes. And you're uh, currently one, right? So we are one. Is, We're is at about $152 billion, so we would benefit from that. The regulators have already made some steps towards giving a discount to banks under that size threshold, but it's nice to have it in legislation so it's more permanent. But you know, I think what you're seeing there is that we will continue to do stress testing. It's a very valuable exercise, and we've integrated it in terms of how we run the bank, how we allocate capital, how we think about risk and managing risk. But we don't have to have the degree of overkill that we had before. So I assume you're very much behind that move to, yes, to raise the threshold to 250. How would it change your day-to-day life? Uh, not all that dramatically, but I think there's other aspects too. Could we regain more authority in terms of how we set our dividend policy and how much buyback we want to do? And so you vest that authority back with bank boards and management teams as opposed to have it be more of a mother may I system <laughs> down in uh, Washington with the regulators. Right. And talking of the regulators, let's personalize it. Randy Quarles has replaced Dan Tarullo uh, at the Fed. What do you make of that guy? I think he's extremely sharp. So one of the things I do is I serve on the Federal Advisory Council, which is set up by law when the Fed was created that each Fed district sends a banker to meet in Washington four times a year and uh, have discussions with the Fed, advise them what's happening in the economy in their districts Mm -hmm. and uh, talk about topical issues. So we just had a meeting in December and we had separate meetings with Jay Powell and with Randy Quarles. And I think that uh, the president has made some very good picks in both putting Jay in charge and then putting Randy in the the vice chairman for supervision. Mm -hmm. One theme that um, emerging from M&A bankers is the prospects of consolidation now, uh, particularly in that sort of middle band of um, maybe 10 billion to 250 billion of assets. From your point of view, is it time to consider deals once more? We've said that we're really not interested in acquiring a depository anytime soon. We have, over the four years that I've been here and three years as a public company, I would describe us as a bit of a fixer-upper. So we've had many levers to pull just to get the bank running better, mm-hmm. and that's contributed to significant growth in and our financial And this is a fixer-upper you inherited from RBS? Yes, correct. Okay. And, Did uh, they leave it in a good condition or not? Well, I think RBS had their stresses, which I was familiar with, having <laughs> been group finance director at RBS and working with Stephen to try to help uh, get the, f- the bank back on a yeah. solid footing. But as part of that exercise, all the worldwide network of RBS had to 
shrink their balance sheets to improve the capital levels yeah. because we were thinly capitalized. And so it's very hard at Citizens, which once had a balance sheet of $170 billion. By the time I arrived, it was down to $120 billion. Mm-hmm. And most of the other banks had pivoted to playing offense and were growing and using their balance sheet to grow loans and bring new customers to the bank. So that yeah. was one of the first things I wanted to do was to get the leverage back in the capital structure. Fortunately, we started with a very strong capital position from that deleveraging. So we had somewhat of a blank slate to decide where do we want to allocate that capital? Where do we want to grow? What kind of customers do we want to bring into the bank? So that's what we've been doing. But there was also underinvestment in areas like technology and risk management and some of the things that RBS itself faced that we hadn't fully caught up on. So we've had a significant amount of work to do to get strong in those areas and to meet the regulator expectations here in the U.S. So it's fixed up. Is it time to consider some kind of extension? So what I was saying there was that, uh, you know, we've had an opportunity just to play offense and grow the bank better and get our revenues growing faster than our expenses. We did our first small acquisition last year or this year in 17 of an M&A boutique, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a Uh, advice as a service to our middle market customers. We have 2,500 middle market customers, and we only had five people doing M&A. Now we have 35, which may still not be enough. But I think what I'd like to focus on is where can we add capabilities that we can either hire organically Mm -hmm. or we can go out and buy it and get a little farther down the track faster. And so that's that's where we've been focused. So bolt on a little boozy, not necessarily a a depository merger. Um, the CFPB, again, uh, returning to FinReg, it's been a hot topic for lots of bank execs. Um, but what's your view on the optimal structure of that thing which was set up, I'll, I'll remind listeners, uh, in 2011, just yes. after the Dodd-Frank yes. Act, notionally to protect consumers? Yeah. Well, I think there is a purpose for a CFPB. And so if it's positioned well with the other prudential supervisors and everybody knows what their role is, it yeah. could work quite effectively. Sometimes there's some overlap, which can be a little kludgy. But, uh, you know, if I think we'd be better served if it were set up in a traditional commission structure. And so there were, like, uh, with the SEC, a panel of five, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe three for the administration's party and two from the other party. So you get a good dialogue about what the right policy positions should be, Mm -hmm. not vested simply in one person. And then the other thing that's a little off about how it's set up today is it's really not on budget, so it's just funded off the proper budget that gets a full review and discussion. So I think that would be the other change that I'd like to see. And then I think it would operate more with more broad support and more in line with how the other regulatory bodies operate. Um, finally, on um, citizens' balance sheet, uh, there's lots of concern amongst analysts that uh, these very good, benign consumer credit conditions we've had for the past few years cannot get much better. Are you beginning to see signs of strain in some portfolios? I think our portfolios, we've had a tremendous year, just uh, delinquencies down. We're, we're releasing credit reserves based on the improvement still. in credit quality still as we go through this year. So very, very positive. To some extent, it depends where you play. And so we play at the high end of the credit spectrum. So we're either banking super prime customers or high prime customers. Um, And so if you look at some of our portfolios, one of the key measures is the FICO score. Mm -hmm. And our student loan average FICO score is 780, which is really super prime. Our auto is maybe 755. Our unsecured is somewhere near there, maybe 760. 
So those are all very high credit scores. In the subprime sector, so borrowers who are a little more stressed and really rely on that credit, you've started to see some uptick in delinquencies in, for example, card portfolios or in auto portfolios. So many of the banks don't go down into that subprime area, and they're specialist lenders, the allies, the SCUSAs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so their delinquencies might be ticking up a little bit. But I still think, broadly speaking, that's all pretty manageable. How much longer can those balance sheets remain pristine from the consumer point well, of view? I, as long as the rates go up in gradually, then people can make those adjustments. And what I like when I think about the outlook for 2018 We've really come through the 10 years since the recession uh, with a lot of headwinds if you're a yeah. bank. So you've, you've had effectively fairly sluggish GDP growth. You've had a low interest rate environment. You've had a heavy growth in regulation. Uh, you have a high tax jurisdiction here in the U.S., and so now you look at what's changed uh, in the things. past year, and almost all those things have changed, right? So the GDP is now, you know, 25 to 3%. Uh, the Fed has the conviction and confidence to go on a rate increase path, uh, which most banks have asset-sensitive balance sheets, so that benefits their net interest margin. You're having a kind of rowing back, bringing that pendulum back to the middle on regulation, which is positive. And then you have the lower tax rate. It's directly beneficial, but then it's also indirectly beneficial. And so I think the mere fact that we're cutting rates is going to have some very salutary effects on the economy. And on business confidence and the desire to spend money on CapEx and invest in the real economy and create jobs. So so I'm a big buyer on the tax package. Bruce Van Solen, thank you very much for joining me. All right, Ben, it's been my pleasure. That's it for this week. All that's left to do is to thank Laura and Barney, Patrick and Ben for their contributions and our guests, Bruce and Bevis, for uh, talking to us and to thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon and Lauren Leatherby. Until next week, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. 
That's stamps.com. Code program.